I'm sure you get a lot of questions from your customers about where the economy is going. So now we're in this period where there's been $7 trillion of QE by the US and now majority of the Western Europe, European and US and even including Japan have a, a debt to GDP of more than 100% now. So you know, we can't really continue financing our own financial or the sovereign debt over and over. And as Ray Dalio said, there's always going to be business cycles and then there's this long uh, cycle, economic cycle. And I think now we're on that cusp of rebalancing. What do you tell your clients about where this economy is heading towards? It has to be said, I mean, I'm very, very nervous about the economy, Takatoshi, in the long term. In the, in the longer term, I'm super optimistic. Once we get through this two or three years ahead, there's something fantastic coming. And I'm sure that's what we'll get to in the rest of the podcast. But the first next 18 months to two years, maybe three years, maybe longer, could be very, very difficult indeed. Let's look at it this way. One thing COVID-19 has done is it's unified the world in a way that has never happened to the economy before. We're all in recession. I mean, that's the first time ever you've seen all the world's continents in recession simultaneously. Equally, I think this came at the end of a very long boom in the United States of America. And obviously, we can't deny the fact that the USA is a super strong powerhouse of the global economy. And I suppose one of the things I was looking at was once we pushed through that 120-month previous record last year, I was starting to get very, very nervous. Not because I had any idea that COVID-19 was coming, but clearly because once you've beaten the previous highs, once you're in record territory, you've got to expect that the cycle is going to come back and reassert itself. And that obviously makes for a very worrying situation because the United States of America has expanded a lot. It is throwing everything, including the kitchen sink, at what's going on. And certainly the way they've been buying, not just per se, you know, buying debt is one interesting thing when you're buying your own government debt and keeping yourself afloat. But now to be going out and effectively buying indexes of corporate debt, that's incredible. I mean, it's totally unprecedented. The Fed are working in a very skilled and intelligent fashion. But you have to think, yeah, well, either the money runs out or indeed we end up in a sort of a Gresham-Copernican situation, which, of course, as you may remember, their rule was that bad money drives out good. And ultimately, at the moment, we see Federal Reserve, central bank money, as being the best money in the world. But what happens if people start losing their faith in those sorts of currencies? That's going to turn things around. Equally, we are on the cusp of a lot of great scientific stuff happening. So whether that's, I mean, things that are outside my sort of pure remit, like nanotechnology and so on, it's amazing to see how technological our world is. It's incredible that we're able to do these sorts of discussions today. And it's interesting how, you know, we look at science fiction, you look at the Jetsons, you look at those great 1960s kind of, you know, Japanese sort of sci-fi movies and things, and you think, 
my goodness, you know, oh, well, we'll never get talking telephones. And of course, the truth is we didn't get talking telephones. We got Zoom. We got WhatsApp. We got all sorts of applications that come together. And I mean, one of my favorite party tricks is, you know, hold up your mobile phone, your cell phone and say, look, this is the greatest device I've ever seen. It's got the world in the palm of your hand. It's an organizer. It's 500 times the computing power or more that took men to the moon in 1969. And it's genius because not only do you have all your social media on it, you know, WeChat or whatever, but actually it's got a telephone built in. I mean, that's genius the way technology is going. However, in the broader economy, what I think we're at is we're at a bonfire of a lot of analog technology. I talk about being bald, which is my state of being. Now, that's nothing to do with the amount of hair I have. I'm of the generation I was born analog, but I'm living digital. Everything I do in business and life is digital. I've been working on the internet since 1994. So therefore, it's nothing new to me. And it's trying to bring everybody on to that. But that obviously provides a huge problem because if you're a legacy provider in the analog world, then things turn upside down. If you are frankly, a service worker at the low end in a lot of economies, there are big problems ahead. We're seeing the substitution effect, for example, in, for example, Hong Kong, but it's also taking place in China. No doubt it's happening in Singapore, where you've got to make sure that places are beautifully sanitized. So what do we do? Well, actually, get rid of people at the reception desk. Get rid of people who are the cleaners. Buy in robots. Why are certain Chinese robot manufacturers up at capacity at the moment? Because they're building lovely little interactive bots that stand there and you say, look, I'd like to go and see Takatoshi and he's on floor 32 and they go, yes, sir, take elevator A and blah, blah, blah. And of course, it's great because no viral load has passed between myself and the robot. And therefore, you can reduce headcount. Now, that becomes a huge problem for the global economy going forward, because what are we going to do with a huge number of service workers who are going to have to change what they do? But then again, think about it in a broad career perspective. And before I terrify any viewers or listeners today, the thing we've got to remember is, well, take Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche has made an incredible impact on humankind for over 200 years, whether you agree with his philosophy or not but he only wrote philosophy for 20 years, and yet he lived a full three-score year and 10. He lived to be over 70 years of age, which has always been since, you know, the ancient Christian Bible, what was expected to be around about human life expectancy. We know we're getting better life expectancy these days, but I think the same rule applies that if you're still in the same business 20 years on or still in the same job 20 years on, in this day and age, you're blessed. But obviously, that provides a huge amount of upheaval for a lot of cultures where people have been used to the idea of a job for life. So we talk about AI quite a lot. It destroys jobs, potentially might even recreate jobs. But when I think about the underlying economy, where the countries all over the world are debt-laden and we're creating more money and the generations who are actually were making a lot of money and we're able to to create more wealth is actually retired and then slowly uh, moving on to di different generations. So in this world right now, where, as I said, it was low interest rates, more debt uh, than ever, how can we recreate the underlying economy so that the technologies can actually come in and recreate a better economy? That's a fascinating question. And I think part of the, the issue we're gonna see here, Takatoshi, is that 
there needs to be a fundamental changing of the way we look at so many structures. And part of the biggest problem is, of course, pensions, because we're used to the idea that you would work for so many years, then you would retire, you would be paid a proportion of whatever that salary was you got originally. And the way they covered that was by buying lots of bonds. But you can't do that in the current day and age because, you know, the first one of the first things you study in economics, I mean, first things like demand and supply curve. And then very soon afterwards, you hear about the yield curve, this whole concept of how you get paid a slightly better interest rate as you go through time. And therefore, you know, it's a nice upward curve as you go along. Well, the difficulty is nowadays, of course, interest rates are flat. I mean, they're the square root of nothing. I mean, effectively, they're paying you to borrow money in certain, certain parts of the world, even in major economies like the euro. So I think what we have to look at is it's really got to be a reestablishment of economic dynamism that has to take us forward. And that's going to be very, very difficult to do because government likes the idea of steady, low-risk low, you know, environments and we're going to change. We're going to have to go towards a lot more dynamism, a lot more very, very fast moving and fast moving investment where people are going to be looking at new technologies that really grow very, very quickly to provide a lot of essential assistance to people. And that's going to fundamentally mean that the workforce is going to have to change because it's going to be reskilling very rapidly. And more significantly, as you say, I mean, artificial intelligence and bots are going to do huge amounts of the work that normal people are going to do. Now, throughout time, people have always talked about this convenience economy, and we have these sort of images of the Jetsons and so on. The one thing we never managed to get away to was that people used to say, oh, by the time, you know, around about people were retiring now in the 2020s, they would be expecting a beautiful leisure life and everything would be relaxed. Whereas instead, actually, we're working harder, we're working longer. That's going to continue. I don't think work is going to disappear from the equation. But what work is, what you can provide an economic return from becomes very different. As we can see from the fact of when we didn't have any actual on-the-field sports going on, good grief, everything from NASCAR to soccer and you name it was being played in an esports environment. And that obviously allows us also to play the fantasies of World of Warcraft and things like that. And there's a whole economy growing up that's going to employ people around it and is going to therefore provide a dynamism. But the actual use of capital is going to be very, very much driven by the fact that people cannot in the future simply expect to go to the government and get a handy little dividend for handing your money over to the government for the course of the next 10 or 20 years. And therefore, people are going to have to invest more. But at the same time, that requires a quantum leap because what we're seeing at the moment in the world is obviously in the USA, lots of people have been locked at home. They've started investing through these apps like Robinhood and so on that give very good access to the, the stock market. And that's producing an incredible wave of new investors. But those investors need to think harder and actually be better educated in what they do which therefore takes us all the way back to the education system, which really has to do an incredibly difficult job because, let's face it, education is analog. I mean, the education I went to, good grief, they taught me Latin and ancient Greek, which actually was incredibly useful, I've got to say, as a way to think and to understand and understand how systems are put together. It's a great preparation. But now you need to be learning technology. You need to be learning finance. You need to be learning investment. And those are all things that we've taken for granted over the years that you could sort of pick up on the fly as you went along. And the truth is, in this modern world, there's just no way you can really start to do that from scratch if you don't already benefit from you know, our backgrounds of being professional financiers. And let's face it, 
The one thing I know about having worked in financial markets for several decades is how little I know about the holistic picture of everything that goes on rather than anything else. So you meet people at cocktail parties and they go, well, you're a finance expert. And it's, well, you know, I'm an expert in areas of finance, but it's a little bit like asking, uh, you know, a proctologist you know, some question about your teeth because he looks at the other end of the body entirely. Yeah, I've been in finance for 18 years and most of my analysis that I've done in companies are generally based on asset-based or cash flow-based. Yeah. And when I look at these markets right now, the FANGs are trading at you know, 28 times P or you know, in case of like Amazon, it's like 280, which is you know, yep. in my, in my generation when we started looking at companies doing comps across different in, in companies, there was no such thing as a company that went 128 and then still considered a valuable uh, investment. So uh, yeah. even in these rocky mar markets, it's very hard to find very good ways to really invest in because there's a lot of quants now that use algorithms to trade and they're very uh, much done at a very uh, nanosecond level where yep. the things that I've done was sitting in front of a desk, Excel, cash flow models and think deeply about where the company's going. So there's a lot of things that you, people need to re-educate themselves about the markets, the financial markets, because as you said, markets always change all the time. And then as more Absolutely. and more technology comes in, it's gonna be harder to harder that to keep what we, we what um, skills that we had and then you apply it to the different normal market. So what, yeah, that's true. But then on the other hand, if I may say so, look at how many ways we have to invest today. And that's just mind boggling. So I come out of the, the derivatives markets, futures and options. And if you think about it in the, you know, in the early 90s, I'm not kidding. I could have named pretty much every futures and options contract in the world. OK, if you look at it nowadays, there are so many contracts. There's such a huge universe because people trade these things they never traded before. Like they actually trade volatility, this VIX index that lots of people talk about. I mean, CNBC seem to have almost a, a hissy fit about it every time they're so excited by it. And therefore, it's not just the macro minutiae of the ultra low latency fast trading, which are absolutely right, but it's also every piece of the granular picture building a holistic market. And then as you get around in a circle, you then discover... It's a little bit like a Swiss cheese. There are other holes every time you cut a slice off and you find something new that's different and needs to be done. And for example, at the moment, you've got, I think, large issues with investing in small companies the world over. And that's why we've had the crowdfunding movement in recent years. And people are still trying to find ways to go forward. And actually, for a, for a localized investor, I still think that's an incredibly good way to put some of your portfolio away. Because let's face it, if you're sitting on, you know, within a mile or two miles of Orchard Road and there's a business there that's looking for funding, you've got a fundamental informational advantage because you can walk past the store, you can see what's happening, you can see what's going on in a way that I can't. I mean, I suppose they could try and put up cameras or something outside, but I still can't get, I can't get the feel or the smell. You look at the shops when you're in somewhere like Orchard Road, you can really tell when the economy's going somewhere because it's got that buzz, buzz, buzz of money. People are spending and you can't get that through CCTV. You can't get that through a Zoom call yet. Therefore, there are always advantages for every kind of investor. There are advantages for every kind of information. But it's a little bit like 
it's a little bit like sport. I mean, you know, don't expect to go out against Lewis Hamilton's Mercedes in your smart car and suddenly perform well. You're not going to do that. But there are other places where you're trying to park your smart car in a very deep basement car parking space where you can get a great advantage. And that's where going forward, there are lots of opportunities for people. Yeah, we always look at the stock markets or the bond markets and everything that's traded on the exchange as a source of potential investing uh, asset classes. But there's a lot of things that we can actually look around the local community that can be funded. And as you say, local restaurants, local mom and pop shops, they all are actual businesses that can return dividends as well. So I do, I do believe that. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. In this time, in this time of COVID-19 after lockdown, never has that become more important for maybe 50 years, 100 years, because you've got the whole issue of community businesses are really, really stretched in a lot of cases because they've gone through three, four, five months with next to no income. I mean, just around the corner from here in Valletta, there's a magnificent restaurant. It's called Noni. Now, Noni have had the ultimate up and down of a year. They gained their Michelin star, their first Michelin star, the blue ribbon of restauranting, at the end of February. We ate in there, we celebrated with the owners, everybody was ecstatic. You could hear the email pinging day in, day out, because people were planning their summer holidays in Malta and it was going like, ding, 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 can we get a table for August, July? And they had this amazing you know, yield curve of a book. It was going all the way out into the future. By the middle of March, they were closed down. They actually functioned as a takeaway. Can you imagine a Michelin-starred takeaway? It's such a groovy concept. They were delivering food for two months just to try and keep the doors open. Now, that's the sort of area where, you know, you can have great local businesses that are undoubtedly going to survive. The difficulty for them is just how long is it going to take for life to really take off again? Because you can't fly into Malta until July 1st. You cannot expect that there's going to be a wide range of flights coming till mid-July. And that's as true of, you know, tourist locales in Singapore as it is in London or Hong Kong or Valletta or the Caribbean. Yeah, that is true. But what I found really interesting about during these times, and we also had these Michelin star restaurants or hotel restaurants of Raffles yeah. Hotel, et cetera, that were delivering, they were delivering food uh, to the doorsteps of everybody in this time. And then apps like Uber, we don't have an Uber here because it was, um, it, they, they lost and there's a new company called, or there's a company yeah. called uh, Grab that runs all the deliveries around here, but all the Grab delivery drivers turned into delivery services as well. But yeah. and it's exciting how to, how to see that, you know, the, the technology has helped companies survive through all this. Uh, of course, there are businesses, bricks and mortar that weren't, weren't allowed to operate, uh, but you know, retail for that matter can go yeah. online. Food can go online. A lot of things can go online where it can save us from these type of quarantines from now on. It's all about digital transformation. Totally. And, and in fact, what's vitally important is that we can manage to keep the logistics together. And this is, of course, why Amazon remains such an exciting play, because then you can go and order stuff from the AliExpresses of this world and a hundred other possible vendors that can deliver all manner of things. What was very interesting though under COVID was that even that fell apart. So we actually were finding it next to impossible to get simple deliveries coming in because when there are no aircraft moving around the world, it is impossible to try and move air freight at the same time. And that's obviously something which I think showed how 
perilously interconnected we were in the same in the same time, and certainly extended delivery cycles, which had got to fabulously efficient levels in recent years. Yeah. Now you had in a, a YouTube video talking about the future of money. And now I think about this a lot because I'm in the blockchain space. You're the chairman of the Blockchain Malta Association. So, you know, I think we have similar topics that we can also talk about, which is not just about uh, finance, but crypto. Yeah. You think about when the crypto came out, it was based on this kind of you know, new cash that people can use that is away from the banking system. and it won't be subject to monetary policies from various governments. And we have one new currency that's global and it's supply based. And, yeah. and the demand is always going to be based on supply and demand. It seemed like a very utopian idea, but at the same time, it carries this Austrian school of economics thought mm -hmm. as well. Now, during this time when Keynesian economics aren't really functioning very well and people are bringing back this Austrian school of thought, which I think is a little bit antiquated as well. And, and disregards quite a lot of the, well, how money is multiplied. It's not a really just yes. about the central banks. It's about, you know, commercial banks multiplying these money. So if you don't have loans, then there's no way that people, especially in these times that people can get money from, uh, you know, banks to, to continue yes. doing their business. So do you have yes. a new idea or how can we come up with a new idea of how to, expand this idea of creating a new money, whether it's Bitcoin or it could be something else, but what, what, what is your take on it? Look, it's really, really interesting. I mean, Bitcoin has done an incredible amount, just as a quick history lesson. I mean, I always talk about Bitcoin as being the Ford Model T of cryptocurrency, and that's because in the 1990s, I mean, I wrote my first book, Capital Market Revolution, about really fintech 10 years before anybody used the word fintech for financial technology. And at that stage, we were talking about new money because digital money was suddenly a possibility. And in fact, I mean, from a local Singapore perspective, I can remember going to the, I think it was the 20th anniversary dinner of the Cymex, which was the futures exchange that became part of Singapore Exchanges Group. And they actually gave us all a little electronic payment card, which was just, you know, a credit card with a little, you know, $20 on it or something like that. And it was a gift to show you kind of where the future was going to be at. And at that point in time, when we all had, you know, mobile phones the size of pretty much a bricks, and they basically were a phone. I mean, you could play Snake or one of those games on it, and that was it. And you could send SMS. This looked radical. Now, Bitcoin, obviously, I didn't talk in that book in 1999 about the blockchain. I'm not Satoshi. Uh, it was interesting, though, to compare notes on how the decentralized nature gave it a further fillip. But truly, there have been people trying electronic monies for the course of the last 20-something years. And, I mean, buses all over from Sydney to London in 1999-2000 were talking about beans, which was a, a possible alternative currency that was going around then. Bitcoin's genius is that somehow or other it caught the zeitgeist in the same way that it took us about 20, 30 years to get from the very early automobiles to the Ford Model T. And the Ford Model T was the thing that not everybody bought, but it, it achieved ubiquity to the degree where everybody looked at it. And they didn't just go, wow, there's one of those newfangled cars. They went, there's a Ford Model T. And that then drove the economy. So that drove the economy because suddenly people had their cars. At the weekends, they had mobility. So you very quickly realized that if you were out in the countryside, you could actually save yourself a trip to market and sell you know, your tomatoes and your produce by the side of the road. Then people realized that, wow, actually we could turn that into a juice or a burger or a coffee. 
and therefore people would have a service. And then also municipalities got in and they realized that, you know, if we make those roads asphalt, if we put tarmacadam on those, then people are more likely to drive our road rather than driving the dusty road. Now, therefore, Bitcoin has done an incredible thing to change the, the atmosphere that it is now plausible to have a digital currency because the Ford Model QT popularized the car so people could go out and get fuel, this, that, and the other. That's been fantastic by what Bitcoin does. How it changes our thinking about money very quickly, I mean, it introduces competition in money that I don't think any school of economics necessarily really had been foreseeing very accurately before because we've been used to this idea that the state provides our money and that's where it comes from. All of a sudden, with a digital ledger like a blockchain, Anyone can essentially produce a token or a coin or something that people can regard as being money because it very, very quickly transfers into another object, into US dollars, Singapore dollars, whatever that may be. That becomes fascinating because in the old days, and you know, I gave this, I mean, I gave a lecture at Nicholas Copernicus University in Turin, which is the birthplace of Copernicus in Poland, another beautiful historic city, actually much older even than Valletta, where I am today. And eight years ago, I talked about how obviously everything's very Copernican at Copernicus University. And I said, what Bitcoin is, is it's the Copernican revolution in money. Because in the old days, if we take that wonderful Copernican diagram, which has effectively all of a sudden the sun at the center of the solar system and the earth rotating around it. We've been used to the idea of money is, you know, insert your favorite central banker right here, Janet Yellen, whoever that may be through history. And then you've got the diagram effectively of the universe. Now, what Bitcoin does in one fell swoop is it turns that on its head because potentially Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency can become the epicenter of the universe which revolves around it. Now, that has an amazing economic impact on everything. First of all, we get money competition. So the one thing I would say about you asking your question, there isn't one big world currency coming. Okay, There will be multiple currencies that will be popular in the same way that we have not achieved a singularity of messaging apps. Some people like Line, some people like Telegram, some people like WhatsApp, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there will be multiple currencies. There will also be different currencies for kind of different situations, different days, whatever. And that means that central banks are going to have a big problem. And government has a big problem right now because it's got to try and compete with essentially private money. This is why we're seeing this thing, central bank digital currency, which is a lovely idea, by the way. It's a good way to make central banks more relevant. But trying to squeeze out the private sector at the same time through regulation, which ultimately I don't believe is going to succeed simply because there will always be a way to buy other tokens and other investments, even if your government is trying to make it difficult for you. And I mean, we've seen that already with hard cash. What was going on in Argentina 10 years ago? They were going through a periodic economic crisis. And actually, lots of guys were turning up with effectively hardware wallets. And they were flying all the way from Poland to Buenos Aires with a bunch of Bitcoin. They would swap that for a two-week holiday in the equivalent of you know, local currency, plus whatever dollars these people had. They would get back home with essentially a bunch of dollars that allowed them to buy more Bitcoin. So that sort of arbitrage is going to continue. You hit the nail on the head, though. The thing that is wonderful about central bank money and commercial banking is that commercial banks and central banks are very good at multiplying the money supply in order to make it all happen. 
If we suddenly have a money supply that is restricted to, for instance, 21 million Bitcoins in due course, that's really not going to help the economy. Because the reason we trust you know, UOB or DBS Bank in Singapore is because we know that they're well-managed, they're coherent, and they will be able to get the money back in due course, but they've actually lent more money than is sitting in their vaults at any one point in time. And therefore, there needs to be an interesting movement to structure in these tokens and currencies. They have to behave more like a central bank money. They have to create a lending market. You have to be able to get a mortgage in it or lease a car in it or something like that in order to create a lending, borrowing yield curve, in order for there, therefore, to be things like debt products and actually for civilization to work. I mean, I think the biggest problem I see going forward is a lot of people have jumped into the decentralization bandwagon. Decentralization is great. Trust-based networks are fantastic, but it is very, very difficult to cohere that with the legal systems that are beloved. Even if we just take the world's major financial centers, you know, London, New York, Hong Kong, Singapore, et cetera, et cetera, they all work on a very simple basis, which is at the end of the day, I want you, Taka, to sign a document to say you're responsible and your office is here in UOB Plaza or wherever. And therefore, suddenly decentralizing everything so that nobody can see it. I don't think that's going to work. I mean, you know, the way I look at it is when there's a financial crisis, okay, the finance minister gets on the phone to the head of the regulator and the head of the central bank, and he goes like, what's going on here? What's happening? And, and indeed, he probably is using an old-fashioned line telephone, you know, those old things that I don't think anybody has anymore. Certainly, I don't. And those guys go, well, you know, we've looked at the clearinghouse of the Singapore Exchange and the collateral is this. We are talking to all of the banks at the central bank and we know that they've got this collateral, that collateral. They're a bit worried about counterparty X, Y, Z. They have a little bit of a concern about some banks in a foreign country, whatever. but basically we know the system's solid. Now, when you decentralize everything wholesale, suddenly the conversation sounds like you're at some sort of Caribbean beach shack. I mean, you're ringing somebody up and he's going like, hey, cool, man, don't, you know, relax. Everything's going to be just fine. All the money's out there. It's fine. Well, no politician in their right mind is ever going to accept that. No central banker is going to allow that to happen because at least allow that to happen without them having some suzerainty or understanding of what's going on because they're going to lose their job and they're in their job to get a cushy pension at the end of days and central bankers are not in the business of being responsible for central banks going bust. So there's a whole interesting issue of we can decentralize certain assets, we can move things into certain networks of trust, but it's very difficult to suddenly just go, oh, everything's just popped into the ether and disappeared, and we should all feel really comfortable about it. Now, I appreciate that there are some things where trust is a very different thing in a way for millennials and others. And I mean, Jeffrey Sprecher, who's the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange, who built the most dynamic exchange group in the world intercontinental from scratch over 20-something years, he's always musing on the idea that you know he can't believe that People will jump into the back of a car run by Grab or Uber or whoever just because some app says this guy's got five stars after his name. Um, and certainly, I mean, don't get me wrong. In a way, I can totally understand why that happens in Singapore because we have so much trust and faith in Singapore's law and order that works. But when you're in a lot of other touristy cities in the world, one might say, that have a lot of petty crime, 
it's incredible how people suddenly go, oh, they're on Uber or in the Middle East, they're on Kareem. And well, I totally trust them. So I'll jump in the back of their car. And, and equally, you know, Bitcoin is kind of weird because look how many people have put their faith in a man who sounds as if he could be Japanese, but we really don't know where he's from. We don't know his address. We know nothing about him. But in fact, we don't even know if he really existed. And at the same time, there's this distributed sort of body of trust, which is very interesting. Yeah, I, I agree to that Grab and Uber um, example. But at the same time, because it's a centralized app, you know yes. that they are held accountable of their actions, right? So Precisely. If they, yeah, if a, if a driver does something, they rape somebody or they, they, they yeah, commit some kind of crime, then you can always go to Uber, Grab and, and complain. Whereas make that into a decentralized app where you, the driver yes. and the passenger can match up the, you know, on without any intervention from anybody and no accountability by anybody. And yeah. let's create that app and, and see how that works out in the world. I think that's a very difficult it is. business It's a difficult system. Yeah, because, because ultimately the first thing works because we're working in civilization and exactly there is someone to go to at Grab or Uber or wherever. And particularly when you're in well-run countries, um, particularly, say, somewhere like Singapore, really you're not terribly scared about anything because you know that while there is a little bit of crime, everybody ultimately gets caught for their crime and therefore that's why very few other people go and do it. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating, but it's a fascinating dynamic. The other thing I think is interesting about this is, and of course I'm a big exchange guy, isn't it fascinating that we've got all this way through the digital revolution and the future and the future design of commerce is actually very, very closely allied to a business model that we can trace back to two and a half thousand years before the birth of Christ and before, to ancient Assyria, to the Lebanese Beiruti merchants that were dealing with the Maltese islands you know, 2,000 years before, when basically the pyramids were still looking pretty much in vogue for, uh, for whatever, vogue pyramids edition Egypt. The exchange. Exchanges are still actually the model, just in the way that the, the ancient Roman Agora created a centralized marketplace which everybody could trust and go and deal in. And therefore, all the way through you know, the birth of the modern exploration boom and so on, where the early expeditions from Europe to the Indies, etc., were all funded by exchanges of one kind or another that became the London Stock Exchange or the Antwerp Stock Exchange before that, etc. And then, you know, all of this technology has come through, and yet what we're actually looking at now is, well, it always annoys me because there's always somebody at a startup conference who gets up and goes, do you know, I mean, have you thought about it? Airbnb, they don't own a single apartment. Uber, they don't own a single car. And it's, well, yes, because they're exchanges. I mean, they're not regulated in the way Singapore exchanges, but actually that distributed model of trust from a trusted center is very, very powerful. And that's where wholesale decentralization becomes very, very difficult to get a grasp on, even beyond the legal constraints of how the legal systems are set up in most nations of the world. In fact, all nations of the world. And just going back to the Bitcoin again, now it's considered not an electronic form of cash, but now everybody thinks of it as gold. Now institutional yeah. investors are all talking about investing in gold or Bitcoin and what is the value comparison and I hear this over and over again nowadays, and, and it has lost its kind of component of being a e-money. So yeah. now that e-money, we have 
e-money from long time ago already, right? We even before Bitcoin, everybody was using some form of e-money anyway. Yes. So, so do you think that now the real use case for crypto now is just being something like oh, alternative to a gold where people just invest in for the you know the the preservation of wealth, or is it? Do you think that there's a way that crypto can actually become a way of people exchanging monetary value? I think that it's somewhere in the nexus of both, okay? Because what we have become incredibly used to in our society, particularly in the course of the last, say, 50 or 60 years since the, the end of the Second World War 70 years ago, is the notion that we only deal in one money. And therefore, 90% pretty much of the world's population, certainly those people who are living in, say, G50 and above countries have become used to one currency. If I go and talk to my Polish mother-in-law, my Polish mother-in-law is still used to an idea that even under communism, they had the old Polish Wati, they sometimes encountered East German marks, which were a better currency still. They, she could also manage to price things in Russian rubles because lots of Russians would come through when it was the, the Soviet bloc. And actually where she lives and where she was born was effectively in a marchland. It was an area that was disputed over history. So actually before her, it had been under two or three different governments. So it's been part of Germany, it's been part of Poland, it's been effectively under the occupation of both Russia and Germany. And therefore, I think we've become very, very lucky in the modern era. I mean, we didn't really have any major global wars. We did not have all sorts of other problems. Let's face it, I don't mean to deprecate the situation, but COVID-19 certainly isn't the plague in the way that it killed people. And it's not the same thing to concern yourself with. I mean, good grief, every so often in the city of London, they're trying to build a new building and building work stops because they find a plague pit, because they find this coat of lime and everybody has to be evacuated and all these guys go in and biohazard units for bodies that were buried in like 1666 AD, okay? So, you know, the current thing, to, I'm not trying to deprecate, it kills people, COVID-19 is a killer, it's been a terrible problem, but we still haven't had anything that truly resembles that far famine pestilence of, of history. And equally, when it comes to money, I think we've got to get ourselves around the idea of being able to work with more than one money. And I think that we're going to see a mixture of, there will be tokens that are maybe a little bit more clunky to exchange. And no disrespect, but I know lots of Bitcoin hater, Bitcoin lovers will be hating me at the moment, but Bitcoin is a little bit clunky to exchange in this day and age. It's a bit expensive and so on. It's the Ford Model T of currency, though. It's got 90% of the DNA of whatever you look at now. But as more and new and better blockchains are being built, as that whole model gets refined, as we find other ways to go towards tokenizing items, there is nothing to stop there being effectively multi-currency pricing for all sorts of things. And some things will probably remain relatively like stocks or bonds. They will remain relatively illiquid. The things that are, you know, the tokens or coins that are issued by your corner shop may not be the biggest thing on earth, but they're probably quite useful to buy stuff in your corner shop with. The tokens or coins that are issued by a major international retailer, whoever they may be, which are then exchangeable in whether you're in, I don't know, H&M store in Shibuya or in Gangnam or wherever in London or New York, that's going to be more liquid and is going to be seen as a currency. But of course, 
The thing about H&M tokens are, I probably don't want them because I'm an old person as far as in H&M are concerned. I'm way beyond their demographics. So therefore, teenage girls may be all spending all of their life on their line app or WeChat and you know using that as a money, H&M coins. Whereas I'm probably going to be looking at something that's relatively more in keeping with my lifestyle and what I do. But I do think we're going towards a multi-currency world of competition. The central banks realize that, and they're trying to stop that competition. They're trying to do it with good intentions, which is they don't want people to lose money through frauds. They're also doing it through self-preservation intentions, because let's face it, central banking as we now know it is really only about 150, 200 years old. I mean, remember, the Federal Reserve that dominates everybody's spending pretty much the world over only found it in the middle of the First World War, 1917. I mean, major number of European central banks are only formed in the late 19th century, as are the leading and early Asian central banks. So it's, it's very funny because we've become used to the idea that the central bank is as old as this 400, 500-year-old structure I'm sitting in here in Valette's model city of Valletta, and that's just not true. Yeah, and then it was pegged to the gold for a very long time, and then maybe Absolutely. I think it was fifty years ago that we disbanded it, and then you know, yep. Fed Fed can print out money uh, whenever they want now, and and I guess that's how it kind of led to how much debt we have in our GD uh, compared to our GDP now. Uh, Absolutely. But, but um, I I kind of given up on the concept where crypto can have its own currency ecosystem, which is not really exchangeable with the US dollars, because I think if you want to no. have a currency, it has to have its own value. And it's not yes. just about comparing prices over the exchange. So I think that's kind of not going to really happen anymore. But the mm -hmm. concept of of CBDC, the central bank digital currency yeah. that you mentioned before is a, a way for the governments to attack that Bitcoin or whatever crypto world and say that you know they had they came with their own cool coin but i think yeah. that it also gives a big leeway into how governments can control our financial spending as well and absolutely i i actually don't know how they want to control their money supply just between the central banks or you call it um you know m1s mzn ones and then i don't know how they're going to recreate the rest of the money supply because money supply is so so complicated and it, there's not it's not just like cash like instruments there's so many different types of of money supply out there so do you think that that's even replicable with with uh, digital currencies it is eventually replicable but it's not going to be replicated by something that has 21 million in issue and can be divided into satoshis great as bitcoin is but you know, but it's also very funny because if you look at the evolution of where we've been, I mean, this conference in 2012, where I was talking about the Copernican theory of you know, money and the change that was going on. And one of the things I said, everybody was really good. The audience was like a religious revival meeting. Everybody was like, rah, 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 he's on our side. You know, he gets it. Bitcoin, 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 Bitcoin. There are these survivalist guys with these huge industrial laptops that they take into mines in Africa, you know, so nobody can get to their, their huge kind of SUV style laptops, et cetera. And they're looking at the price of Bitcoin and they're like, we're trading the future, man. And then I got up and I said, look, there's one thing that is always true in economics. You never get a singular something. I mean, although things do go towards a monopoly, actually monopolies eventually die for many, many different reasons. And usually markets thrive on competition because not everybody wants exactly the same thing in life. And people are different ages, different spending powers and so on. 
the room went completely dead. They went to wanting to kill me. No, in 2012, everybody would put up an argument and say, no, 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 Bitcoin's perfect. There'll never be another cryptocurrency. You look at where we've got to by even 2015, 2016, and you had Ethereum and various other things being done, including Dogecoin and all sorts of other wacky and funky stuff. And as the, the workers get called to their lunchtime in Valletta, which is the siren that's going off behind us, it's an amazing scenario how much the world has changed already. So here we are eight years later, and we're talking about, yeah, well, you know, there's got to be some way that this changes. Well, central banks in 2012 were like poo-pooing Bitcoin because it was nothing. Now they're going, well, we don't really want to admit it, but actually it's a pretty cool idea. And we can see how that can modernize our business. And you can see how the universe is gradually expanding of what goes on. And look, it's like stores. How many people who had a beautiful Singaporean chop house style store in 1820 was sitting in that store thinking, no, what's going to happen is in... 180 years, the whole of Orchard Road will have been knocked down and turned into 7 billion square feet of retail space where they'll be selling things that I can't even imagine they're ever going to invent. That's true. I don't think anybody was able to think about that. And of course, we are always developing our own economy and shaping it as it comes. I mean, nobody can really yep. predict the future, but we can only build it. So now, yeah. I think, Patrick, we could talk about many things over and over for many hours, but... Uh, you know, I think we have a, a time has come up and uh, I really thank you very much for sharing your views and ideas about the future of money and, and different type of topics that we ran into. So thank you very much for your time. You're very, very welcome. Very welcome indeed. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. If you had enjoyed or disliked the show, please let me know in the comment section. I can only improve or add value to you through your voices. If there are any topics that you'd like me to pick up, please let me know in the comment section as well. I'd love to start chatting with you. And if you'd like to continue listening to the show, please subscribe. Thank you.